Welcome to the Northbound Wealth Podcast. All opinions expressed by me, my co-hosts, or my guests are solely our own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Northbound Wealth Management, LLC. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment, tax, or legal advice, or as a solicitation to offer or buy any securities. Clients of Northbound Wealth Management LLC may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. I just want to go over the quick show format for those of you who are new to the show. Number one, disclosures. Two, weekly market check. Number three, insights on personal finance, on investing and education. Four, technical market spotlight. Five, wrapping it up, final thoughts. And I will interweave sometimes some fun stuff. So stay tuned. Thanks for listening. This is the Northbound Wealth Management Weekly Market Insights with your host, Brent Foster. Today is August 30th, and uh, I'm going to review last week. So let's do it. Let's dive right in. It was an interesting week. Uh, Powell's comments spur a sell-off on Wall Street. The comprehensive sell-off on Friday following comments by Fed Chair Jerome Powell drove stocks to losses for the week. The Dow Jones Industrial Average tumbled 4.22%, while the S&P 500 dropped 4.04%. The NASDAQ Composite Index fell 4.44% for the week, and the MSCI EFA Index, which tracks developed overseas stock markets, lost 1.10%. So the Dow uh, closes the week out at 32.283, and that means year-to-date, it is down 11.16%. The NASDAQ closed at 12,141, which is down 22.39% for the year. The MSCI EFA index closed at 1,898. Uh, that's down 18.73%. The S&P 500 closed at 4,057, uh, which is down 15.32% for the year. The 10-year treasury note closed at 30 Four percent. That's down six basis points for the week. That's uh, that's that's up one point five two percent for the year. That's great considering inflation is real high. Um, so, as a recap, stocks dropped on Friday following Powell's remarks, reiterating the Fed's inflation-fighting resolve. While his comments did not break new ground, markets reacted severely, perhaps on worries that interest rate hikes may continue into next year. After starting the week sharply lower on renewed rising interest rate and economic slowdown fears, markets staged a modest turnaround beginning midweek. Stocks rallied on Thursday, sparked by revised GDP or gross domestic product estimates showing the economy shrinking less than initially estimated. Thursday's rally also got a boost from regional Fed Reserve Bank presidents who suggested future rate hikes may be in line with market expectations. Powell at Jackson Hole. So in his much anticipated speech at the Jackson Hole Economic Symposium, Powell basically didn't flinch. He reaffirmed the Fed's commitment to raising rates to lower inflation even if it results in causing pain to individuals and businesses. Wall Street focused on Powell's presentation in the hope that it might provide greater clarity on future Fed direction, though his remarks ultimately went no further than restating past communications. 
Powell commented, quote, we are moving our policy stance purposefully to a level that will be sufficiently restrictive to return inflation to 2%, end quote. This statement may have put to rest any thoughts that the Fed would soon pivot on rate hikes. Interesting. This week, key economic data. So Tuesday, consumer confidence, job openings, which is the JOLT survey. Wednesday, ADP processing or automated data processing reports. That's a, that's a gauge on the employment and how that's going. Thursday, jobless claims, uh, the ISM manufacturing uh, index survey uh, is released. Then Friday, the employment situation and factory orders are updated and released. So uh, companies reporting earnings Tuesday, Best Buy, uh, and then Hewlett Packard, Thursday, Broadcom, uh, or and uh, Hormel Foods. So not a whole lot going on this week as far as earnings releases. In the book, Raising Men, From Fathers to Sons, Life Lessons from Navy SEAL Training, written by Eric Davis, Navy SEAL sniper instructor. Um, there's an excerpt out of his book that I wanted to read. It's written by one of his buddies, Chris Sinog. Uh, who has spent his life uh, training people in the world of uh, sniping, if you will. Um, it, he wrote this excerpt. It says here, invest in yourself every day. After I'd been in the military for a year or two, I was talking to my mom about this exciting thing I'd discovered called mutual funds, an investment program that utilizes a concept known as compounding. If you invest a little bit of money each month, that money will grow. She said, yeah, yeah, Chris, that's how we made our money through mutual funds. And Chris goes on to say, I remember sitting with her right there thinking, wow, I had to learn this lesson on my own. That's kind of crazy that my parents didn't explain finances or the power of investment to me as a young boy. As a father, I really wanted to make sure that I taught my sons about the importance of financial stability and planning. I recently read a good book called The Compound Effect by Darren Handy. In that book, the author talks about two people having to choose between getting $3 million up front or getting a penny that will double each day for 31 days. So it's interesting to see what happens to the person who chooses the penny because their first 15 days seems like the growth is minimal. Two pennies, four pennies, then eight pennies. You're at day 15 and you only got $160. And the only, uh, the, the other guy has 3 million is uh, living in Tahiti, drinking margaritas. However, by day 31, that penny has become about $10 million. I wanted to teach my boys who were nine and 11 at the time, that lesson. I had them both read the book about the importance of practice because I am a trainer and teach firearms. And I believe how you practice is so much more important than what it is that you're practicing. I wanted them to understand that so that, so I had them read the book uh, about the importance of practice. And I told them that if they finished it and wrote a little report, on what they learned, I'd give each of them $100. They both took me up on the offer, finished the book, and wrote the report. 
When I sat down with them to discuss the book, I had a $100 bill in one hand, and in the other hand, I had a penny. And I said, you can take the $100 right now, as promised, and you can spend it however you want. I actually made them tell me what they were going to spend it on because I wanted them to be excited about it. Then I said, or insisted, you can take this penny and double it for 16 days. I wasn't going for 31. The younger one being younger, I guess, had that $100 I held in my hand spent already. He didn't care about the penny or what he would get if he, uh, if he had just waited. However, my older son took the penny. He said, I don't know how much money I'll have in the end, but I know you, dad, and I know you're going to teach me something. And after 16 days, my oldest son ended up with more than $200 to spend on what he wanted. In the end, both boys learned the same lesson. They learned about the importance of compounding and of investing, not just financially, but how investing in your training and in yourself, how doing a little bit each day can build and build, whereas those who reach for too much too soon can end up in the end with less. Consider that as you think about your day today and investing with compounding and the way that you practice. It's good advice. I like that story. Managing money as a couple. When you marry or simply share a household with someone, your life changes and your approach to managing your money may change as well. The good news is usually not so difficult. At some point, you'll have to ask yourself some money questions, questions that pertain not only to your shared finances, but also to your individual finances. Waiting too long to ask or to answer those questions might have some consequences. First of all, how do you propose setting priorities? One of your first priorities should be simply setting aside money that may help you build an emergency fund. But there are other questions to ask. Should you open joint accounts? Should you title your assets that are owned by both of you? How should you title those? How much will you spend and save? Budgeting can help you arrive at your answer. A simple budget, an elaborate budget, or an attempt at a budget can prove more informative than you realize. A thorough line item budget may seem a little over the top, but what you learn from it may be truly eye-opening. How often will you check on your financial progress? When finances affect two people rather than one, statements can become more important. Checking in on these details once a month or at least twice a quarter may keep you both informed so that neither one of you has misconceptions about household finances or assets. Arguments can be avoided when money misunderstandings are resolved through checkups. What degree of independence do you want to maintain? Do you want to keep some money separate? Some spouses need individual finance or, quote, space end quote, of their own. There's nothing wrong with this approach. Can you be businesslike about your finances? Spouses who are inattentive or nonchalant about financial matters may encounter more financial trouble than they anticipate. So watch where your money goes and think about ways to pay yourself first. Set shared short-term, medium-term, and long-term objectives. Communication is key to all of this. Watching your progress together may well have benefits beyond the financial, so a regular conversation should be a goal. 
how to invest like Warren Buffett, delve into Warren Buffett's investment strategy. Susan Tubinski on August 3rd wrote in Morning Star. She wrote about Warren Buffett and Brookshire Hathaway, ticker symbol BRKA or BRKB. So check this out. This is good advice. I really like it. That's why I'm sharing it with you guys. Warren Buffett is undoubtedly one of the most respective investors of all time. On paper, Buffett's investment strategy is pretty simple. Here we go. We got five bullet points. Buy businesses, not stocks. In other words, think like a business owner, not someone who owns a piece of paper or these days a digital trade confirmation. Number two, look for companies with competitive advantages that can be maintained or economic moats. Firms that can successfully fend off competitors have a better chance of increasing intrinsic value over time. Number three, focus on long-term intrinsic value, not short-term earnings. What matters is how much cash a company can generate for its owners in the future. Therefore, value companies using a discounted cash flow analysis. Number four, demand a margin of safety. Future cash flows are, by their nature, uncertain. To compensate for that uncertainty, always buy companies for less than their intrinsic values. And number five, be patient. Investing isn't about instant gratification. It's about long-term success. Notice he said, investing, not trading. Of course, what's simple in theory can be less so in execution. So if you want to emulate Buffett's investment strategy, Morningstar has compiled some of uh, their work about Warren Buffett or on Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, his business partner, what they pursued at Berkshire Hathaway. They've also taken a look at funds that emulate Berkshire style and they've provided their So in that last article about Warren Buffett and value investing, Here's a contrast to that. What about growth investing? So what is growth investing? According to Investopedia, which I love to reference, this article was actually written last year, but I think it's an excellent explanation. Growth investing is an investment style and strategy that is focused on increasing an investor's capital. Growth investors typically invest in growth stocks that is young or small companies whose earnings are expected to increase at an above average rate compared to their industry sector or overall market. Growth investing is highly attractive to many investors because buying stock in emerging companies can provide impressive returns as long as the companies are successful. However, such companies are untried and thus often pose fairly high risk. Growth investing may be contrasted with value investing. Whereas value investing is an investment strategy that involves picking stocks that appear to be trading for less than intrinsic or book value. The key takeaways about growth investing is growth investing is a stock buying strategy that looks for companies that are expected to grow at above average rates compared to their industry or broader market. Growth investors tend to favor smaller, younger companies poised to expand and increase profitability potential in the future, and growth investors often look uh, to five key factors when evaluating stocks, historical and future earnings growth, profit margins, return on equity or ROE, and share price performance. 
price performance being the most important, <laughs> in my opinion, when you look at it. We want to make money, not lose. Um, so understanding and understanding growth investing and and in doing that, growth investors typically look for investments that are in rapidly expanding industries or even entire markets where new technologies and services are being developed. Growth investors look to profit through capital appreciation, which is price appreciation. That is the gains they will achieve when they sell their stock, obviously at some point in the future when it's higher, as opposed to dividends they receive while they own it. In fact, most growth stock companies reinvest their earnings back into the business rather than paying a dividend to their shareholders. So when you when you listen or hear about Warren Buffett being a value investor, I think that's great, especially in economic downturns or if you're looking for income. But if you're looking for growth, not all these companies are spinning out dividends and income to you. They're actually reinvesting in their companies and you you get those that they, this thing called capital appreciation, uh, which is their price, their stock price going up over time. So um, you're not really buffered by the cash flow payments back to you as an investor. But starting out, it's always nice to begin by looking at uh, uh, being a, a value investor and a growth investor at the same time. In that's my opinion. These uh, these growth companies tend to be small, young companies with excellent potential. Um, they uh, may also be companies that have just started to trade publicly, so like like an IPO or initial public offering. That the idea is that the company will prosper and expand, and this growth in earnings or revenues will eventually translate into higher stock prices in the future. Growth stocks may therefore trade at high price earnings or PE ratios. They may not have earnings at the present moment, but they are expected to in the future. This is because they hold or may hold uh, patents or have access to technologies that put them ahead of others in their industry, uh, i.e. Tesla. Um, in order to stay ahead of competitors, they reinvest profits to develop even newer technologies, and they seek to secure patents as a way to ensure longer term growth. Because investors seek to maximize capital gains, which is growth, price appreciation, right? Growth investing is also known as capital growth strategy or a capital appreciation strategy. So how do you, you evaluate a company's potential for growth? So growth investors look at a company's or a market's potential for growth. They're, so like a total addressable market and their, their pull position within that space. There is no absolute formula for evaluating this potential. It requires a degree of individual interpretation based on objective and subjective factors plus personal judgment. Growth investors may use certain methods or criteria as a framework for their analysis, but these methods must be applied with a company's particular situation in mind. Specifically, its current position vis-a-vis -vis its past industry performance and historical financial performance. In general, though, in growth investors look at five key factors uh, in, when selecting companies that may provide capital appreciation. And these include, number one, strong historical earnings. Companies that show a track record of strong earnings growth over pr the previous five to 10 years, the minimum EPS or earnings per share growth depends on the size of the company. For example, you might look for growth of at least 5% for companies that are larger than $4 billion in market cap. 
7% for companies in the 400 to $4 billion range in market cap and 12% for smaller companies under 400 million. The basic idea is that if the company has displayed good growth in the recent past, it is likely to continue doing so moving forward. Now you got to cross-reference that with technical analysis and watch the charts and understand where they're trading um, and that you're not paying too much for, for future growth. So strong forward earnings growth, which funny, it just rolls right into that. An earnings announcement is an official public statement of a company's profit, profitability for a specific period, typically a quarter or a year. These announcements are made on specific dates during earnings seasons and are preceded by earnings estimates issued by equity analysis or analysts. It's these estimates that growth investors pay close attention to as they try to determine which companies are likely to grow at above average rates compared to the industry. Strong profit margins. A company's pre-tax profit margin is calculated by deducting all expenses from sales, except taxes, and dividing by sales. It's an important metric to consider because a company can have fantastic growth in sales with poor gains in earnings, which could indicate management is not controlling costs and revenues. In general, if a company exceeds its previous five-year average of pre-tax profit margins, as well as those of its industry, the company may be a good growth candidate. Strong return on equity or ROE. A company's return on equity measures its profitability by revealing how much profit a company generates with the money shareholders have invested. It's calculated by dividing net income by shareholder equity. A good rule of thumb is to compare a company's present ROE to the five-year average ROE of a company and the industry. Stable or increasing ROE or return on equity indicates that the management is doing a good job generating returns from shareholders' investments and operating the business efficiently. Finally, strong stock performance. In general, if a stock cannot realistically double in five years, it's probably not a good growth stock. Keep in mind, a stock's price would double in seven years with a growth rate of just 10%. To double in five, the growth rate must be 15%, something that's currently feasible for young companies in rapidly expanding industries. Those interested in learning more about growth investing, value investing, and other financial topics may want to consider um, giving us a call and talking to us at Northbound Wealth Management about what they should be doing about their specific uh, strategies and, and unique situations. So um, I'm ha we're happy to answer any questions you may have between growth and value investing, but I thought it would be really cool to run through growth and value as we consider the market environment that we're in right now, which is a bear market. And there's opportunities all over the place to deploy cash or an and or capital into certain uh, segments of the economy and buying businesses and looking at uh, specific companies that are going to be growing over time. It's only going to help you financially make money, protect money, and fight against inflation that may stick around a little longer than people anticipated. Technical analysis spotlight, the S&P 500 retraces half of the summertime rally and hits key support at 38.99 to 39.45. So the S&P 500 index dropped through the 39.97 August uh, equal swings objective and 39.80, 50% retracement of the summertime rebound following 
uh, uh, last week's hawkish Jackson Hole message from the Fed. The index also now it sits in the middle of the June-July base pattern breakout and the July-August pattern breakdown. Um, so we're sitting here a support level near 4,100. It took uh, we broke through that. So we're looking at uh, if the S&P 500 breaks at 3,899, uh, then we might see a retest of the June lows at 36.36. That's the bottom. So uh, from a technical perspective, uh, the markets have retraced about, oh, uh, maybe 50% of the move from June bottom all the way up to the most recent peak. So we're still in a, in a uh, negative uh, and or bearish downtrend um, also I want to point out that the, those specific levels, um, the 200 day moving averages in there and from the most recent rally failed to hold, uh, up above the 200 day moving average. And so now the equity markets, uh, resolving to the downside and trading above the 50 day moving average, uh, maybe even this week breaking through that and then trying to bounce off of that. So it's kind of like, a weird choppy market in a downtrend um, that we had a failed breakout. So we'll see how the market bases up here, if at all. Uh, the NASDAQ also, the NASDAQ 100 index dropped down through a cluster of support at that 12,485 to 12,718 area, uh, moves through levels in that area compounded by low seasonal liquidity. So as I mentioned before, this is a uh, a seasonal um, weakness uh, area every year. It's it, August and September aren't exactly the best months in the market. Um, so we'll see if uh, the upper 11,000s to low 12,000s on the NASDAQ uh, hold and, um, and we get a rebound up to 13,175 or 13,243 if we get a rebound up in those, that confluence area, then we would uh, derail the latest bearish momentum that we've got right now. So in the near term, um, we're going to be monitoring the markets to see how the equity markets are going to be trading, uh, the S&P, the NASDAQ, and then the Russell, which is Russell 2000, small companies, small mid cap companies out there um, and see where they're all trading. But right now, a lot of the indexes are trading below their 200 days, but right at or slightly around the, their 50-day moving averages that I uh, mentioned earlier. I'm also going to touch on the Euro Stock X index or, and also the MSCI EFA index. Both of those indexes are in bearish trends. Um, it, it, that, it just means also, like I mentioned before, there's a lot of opportunities out there. So we're going to be um, monitoring that going forward. Um, there's really going to be this tug of war between bulls and bears, uh, meaning buyers and sellers of the equity markets. Um, a lot of tactical positioning. Um, there's discussions about a recession coming in 2023 that uh, asset managers, traders, and portfolio managers are trying to get ahead of and position well for uh, based on their uh, specific ob objectives and goals, clients' objectives and goals. And so um, you're seeing a lot of of oscillation 
between growth and value and safety and risk and all this stuff going on all at the same time. So it is a really, really dynamic and interesting uh, time to be trading and investing and managing portfolios. But we'll keep you posted. Check out the blog, check out uh, the podcast, continue to listen, learn, and educate yourselves about what you could be doing or what you're potentially what your advisors, asset managers, investment advisors are doing uh, for you. Until next time, have a great Labor Day weekend.